everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So <sighs> thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. By way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields, or as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode that has literally been almost my entire professional career in the making. So... I'm going to start at the beginning because I feel like that sets the stage for 
everything that has happened. Once upon a time, I was a speech teacher in the public schools going to graduate school full time. And I had my very first medical practicum and was elated to finally get to work with adults, which oddly enough is what I thought I wanted to do for my entire professional career. But now I'm really grateful that I work with tiny boogers as opposed to big boogers, but I digress. Anywho, in the course of that practicum, I worked with the most amazing physical therapy assistant. And uh, one day at the end of the shift, she told me, have a blessed day. And full disclosure, y'all, I grew up Southern Baptist. I may cuss like a sailor, but my family was Navy DOD and I married Army, but I love Jesus. And that's how I was raised. And it's fundamental to who I am as a person. And when she said, have a blessed day, I responded with you too. And I meant it. And my clinical supervisor pulled me aside and bullied and intimidated me. And I'll gloss over the highlights and informed me that faith had no place in our profession. And I dried my eyes and I gathered my things and I went home to an abusive first husband who later that night beat the hell out of me. And as I laid in my bed thinking, How am I going to cover this bruise up and what foundation am I going to use? I thought, I don't know if I want to enter a profession where I can't breathe and be me. And so like all things, I was taught, you call on your counselor of elders. And I reached out, I called my grandma and she said, faith has a place and everybody has their faith. And if they don't have their faith, then that's still their faith. But that makes us who we are. And that makes us beautiful. And that's what life is. It is this intimately woven tapestry of everybody pulling all these different threads together. And it's what makes us stronger because we are interwoven at our core. So I have held on to that memory and vowed to try to be respectful and to try to grow as a human to understand where people come from, because healed people heal people and hurt people hurt people. And I always want to be on the healing side because, again, I feel like that's fundamental to being a speech language pathologist. So after four and a half years of this podcast, after 1.2 million plus downloads, after touching the lives of colleagues and professionals and caregivers in over a hundred different countries. I feel that at this moment in time, we have created a safe place for all of us to breathe together and to learn. And I am in awe that we have done that together and that you have given Aaron and I the privilege to do that with you. So I called on dear friends and the Council of Elders to share their walks, to share parts of their faith, to be raw, to be vulnerable. And I ask that for the next two hours that you go on this journey with us and you just hear what we have to say. 
because we all come from different walks. And so do our patients. And we owe it to them. And we owe it to our students who ask the hard questions. That is my very emotional, joyful backstory as I literally have my laptop propped up on the boys' Lego advent calendars, but we went with Guardians of the Galaxy this year because I am not sugaring these children up every single day for the next 30, 25, however many days are in advent. You'd think I'd know that. I mean, whatever. So Aaron, hi. How are you doing, lady? (laughs) Sorry, my cat could feel my anxiety, so she was just giving me a little emotional support. Everyone will have a chance to to share their stories today, but you and I have had a lot of conversations because I am someone that grew up Catholic, but am on a journey with my faith, I guess you would say, but I'm someone who is very authentic in that. And I never want to express something that I don't believe. And you were someone that has taught me how to be open, but also feel very loved in where I am. Because I think in the past, I've felt that some people think I'm lost and coming from the North and moving to the South was a big culture shock for me because people are so much more open about their faith down South. Like you do not say bless you or like any of those things in New York, that's just not, but you've shown me how to accept love in ways that I didn't know was love because of understanding other people's faith. And I think that's another thing is like, the more you learn about people and their faith and their walks, the more you learn about how they love. And so that's been something I've learned from you. So that was vicariously grandma. (laughs) Okay. So For the full disclosure, I grew up Southern Baptist and personally ran into a situation where our church would not allow females in positions of authority. And I don't know if y'all met me, but like, that's a problem. (laughs) So like, we now go to a ECLA Lutheran church with a very liberal female pastor And the first service on Sundays is filled with children with differing and disabilities, including the pastor's son. And it's awesome to be surrounded by all of these little ones and not so little ones. And that's what my religious background is, is going from Southern Baptist to ECLA Lutheran, but it's evangelical Lutheran. It's basically the closest you can get to being Catholic without being Catholic. And they serve real wine at church, which is hysterical because the eight-year-old is like, that's a problem. But that's our backgrounds, folks. So now you know where we're coming from. And our first guest of the evening is none other than our very dear friend, Dr. Rocky Garcia, who has somehow adopted Aaron and I, and we haven't scared her off yet. <laughs> Which, bloody hell, that's miracle in and of itself. Miracle number one. You guys ever seen the saint with Val Kilmer and he like keeps track of the miracles at the end? Yeah. <laughs> but Rocky, hi. Hi, Aaron. Thank you for having me tonight. Um, I'm excited to be on this panel with Sophia and Dr. Murray. So I, I feel very honored. So thank you, Michelle and Aaron, for inviting me. I feel like you guys have adopted me versus me adopting you, but that's okay because I think that at the end of the day, it's 
all about the people you surround yourself and how you use those people to help remind you of who you are. And, and that's something that I continue to do when I um, speak with you or when I just text you, or even if I just like think about you. So I think that's wonderful. So thank you for that. A little bit about me, my maiden name is Wallowitz. So I come from a Jewish background and my father's family actually was extremely orthodox. So they had like rabbis and, you know, when my brother was like, had his bar mitzvah, like the females had to be separated from the males. It's like one of those very religious types of settings. And I was always interested in the Jewish religion. And I think my faith was tested when my father passed away. I was 10 and he passed away because my mom, she's Jewish, which in the Jewish religion is big. If your mom is Jewish, it's a very big thing. So my dad was Jewish. My mom was Jewish, but she wasn't from an Orthodox religious family. And when he passed away, which was unexpected when I was 10, unfortunately, my father's family decided that they didn't want anything to do with my mom and my brother and I. So because of that, it made me as a 10-year-old, but I've always been a mature person, very analytical, as those of you who know me. It always made me question a lot about the religion because I didn't know so much about it and why that would happen if they were so orthodox. So it always made me question certain things and want to learn more about my own religion. But as I've grown and matured as a clinician and as a professional, and just as a person, right, like the person I want to be as a speech pathologist and as a human in this crazy world that we live in, you know, I've realized that I don't really put a label anymore on what I subscribe to as a religion, because at the end of the day, it's making sure that I have at a higher power that I am reaching out to, talking with, and then knowing how to use that higher power that I'm supporting myself with and being able to do good in the world. Doing good in the world is not, I'm not talking about speech pathology because I'm very blessed to be in this field as a speech pathologist, but doing good in the world as being kind to people. Like when you're in a store and everyone's yelling at the register person, being kind to them and reminding them that you value what they do. Or if you're in a traffic jam, not honking your horn like everybody else, just go with it and try to stay calm because we can't fall into a hole where we can't get out of, even for small moments, like a traffic jam. And that's where my higher power comes into and those types of perspectives. And I know that as we kind of talk more and more tonight, it's being the person that I am, I often get questioned, you know, why did I not have my husband convert when we got married because he's Catholic? Or why did I not convert when we got married because he's Catholic? And what I always answer is, is doesn't change who we are as people and, you know, why we love each other. So we would never use religion to change our perspectives or, or impose on each other. We just continue to support what we believe as individuals. So that's kind of where I'm at. And like, even now, like I would say like even the past two years because of COVID, I've been in like a funk, you know, like trying to find my place in the world and trying to really, even though the world's back to normal, it's really not back to normal. Everyone's just acting like it's back to normal. Right. So just kind of figuring out like where I'm supposed to be as that person. And I feel that I'm you know, going more into my faith and really looking at how I can remind myself that it's okay to give myself grace because I give everybody grace. Like I'm that person that's always like, you can do it. Great job. Like, right. Like I'm that person, but I need to remind myself through my own 
faith to give myself grace and to give myself time and to know that it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to not always put your best foot forward because we're human. And, you know, oftentimes we have to pause to be able to recalibrate just like anything else. And I think your faith really helps with that. So I think it's really important that we're doing this tonight because I think when people hear the word faith, they often think, okay, this is going to be a religious talk or, oh, this is going to be, she's talking about Judaism and you're talking about Buddhism. And I don't think it always has to be like that. I think you can just talk about what helps you be the human that you want to be. And maybe if we all did that, and then not to sound hokey, but maybe our world would be better because mm-hmm. our world is a little, like one of those tops that you spin, that's the world we're in, yeah. you know, so Y'all, I got to be honest, when I am stressed about professional issues and maintaining composure, Rocky is on speed dial for me for text message. And I may look calm, cool and collected, but the Irish temper is like right under the surface. So, and we're all human, right? Like that happens. And, you know, little things can like really irk us sometimes. And you're like, First of all, do you have that community that you can reach out to and be like, you know, this really bothered me that this person said this to me, or this really bothered me that I wasn't asked to do this, or, you know, little things like that. But, you know, even when you're working with a family, sometimes things happen with families that we assume, because we're so well-intentioned, that they're going to do it the way we are recommending, and it doesn't always work that way. And oftentimes we have to take a step back and re, like, recalibrate our own vision on why we're seeing it that way and help us become a better clinician too. I think working in the critical care units for so long has really changed who I was too, because you're seeing things that you never thought you would see. Like I remember, and I still to this day, I remember it was like a Saturday, like 1130 in the morning. And I was working in the PICU, the pediatric intensive care unit. And I was just working with a like a baby that was waiting for her heart, but she was very stable. She was a good baby. I was doing like non-nutritive with the pacifier on a Saturday. She was easy peasy. Her mom was not in the room. And I remember I was working with her and I heard like the most blood curdling scream I've ever heard in my life. Right. And I remember I looked at the baby. I was like, is it her? Like, I just didn't know what was going on. And then I paused and I stepped out and I saw a parent on the floor, like, hysterically crying and everyone surrounding her and it was something very traumatic her son had passed away unexpectedly he came in through the emergency room he was playing sports and he had like cardiac arrest and I didn't know that at the time but I remember I went back to that baby like I'm gonna cry thinking about it because I could still hear her the scream I will never forget that scream and I remember I went back to that baby and I just prayed with her. I didn't even know that baby's faith. The baby didn't even know what was going on because she's a baby. But I just said, you know, baby, and I said her name. I said, I know you don't know this mom or dad who, or because I really couldn't see if it was a mom or dad. I just knew it was a parent on the floor. I said, we have to help this mom heal somehow and, and help her get off the floor and help her find the right person in this unit to talk to so she can make it through this one minute or one hour and then one day. And I remember doing that and I remember I left the room after that and then I actually threw up because it was so traumatic for me. And then I said to myself, I was like, why did I do that? Like, I don't know this parent. I've been working in the critical care unit for so long. Like, why did that matter? And afterward, I said, it helped me get through. She's a human and she lost her human. 
right? So I, I reminded myself, you're not a robot. As a clinician, we're allowed to feel and we're allowed to remember that these moments are really difficult. So, so yeah. what we do, mm-hmm. especially with the littlest ones, and y'all, this is like Johnny on the spot, Dr. Faye, Murray, and Dr. Garcia. I don't think they've ever met. We're being like super raw, just like honest, open, and literally burying our soul for all the peoples. But when we're working with these little bitty ones, I mean, like I have a little one right now who's in hospice because of his heart and he just turned one years old. I mean, Aaron and I worked with a little one who was in hospice, then palliative care, and she just turned four. But we see them at their most raw and their most vulnerable. But also we're breaking bread with the families. We have those intimate moments because of home health, because we're having meals with them. So one of the things that I have beautifully failed in my practice is understanding different faith traditions, especially with respect to food. My ex-husband's family was Jewish. I spent several Hanukkahs in little Odessa, little Russia in Brooklyn. Definitely pretty sure I saw the mob like doing vodka shots one time, but like, you know, this is Kesara. It's about the time, same time the Lord of War came out or God of War or whatever with Nicolas Cage. And I was like, it's them. But they always ate pork. His family always had a honey baked ham on Hanukkah. So I didn't know. I know. Faye's looking at me like, I'm like, yes, I didn't know that that was like not kosher because I didn't know about anything being kosher because they ate honey baked ham. So there we are at Hanukkah having ham. And so when I grew up and became a speech pathologist and like tried to adult better, I may or may not at one point in time have recommended Beanie Weenies to a family that was definitely not kosher. (laughs) So like, congratulations, Michelle, you're an idiot. (laughs) But like, they were really offended, but I didn't understand how I had caused the offense because I also didn't seek to learn more. So I'm going to take ownership over my flop. So as dog is trying to dig a hole in the carpet, because she knows mom failed that bad. No, I'm just kidding. She's just trying to get comfortable on the other side. So if y'all hear some noises in the background, that's dog. She says, hello. But Rocky, can you kind of walk us through some of like the major faith celebrations within Judaism? Yeah, of course. So when we think about Judaism, I think commercially, individuals always just think of Hanukkah because we have Christmas on Hanukkah. Hanukkah is really not as big of a holiday. It's not big holiday for Judaism, but it's not one of those holidays that would be as celebrated as one like Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, which are more of those what we call high holidays. So Passover, which is typically like a week-long tradition that we have that we're reflecting on our exodus from Egypt, and it's celebrated typically for eight days and It's really centered on trying to, you're not really eating anything with like leavened products. So you're not going to be eating anything with like flour. So that's why you'll see people instead of eating like bread, they're eating like matzah. A matzah is like a very flat cracker, which is delicious with butter, by the way, like really good butter, not like cheap butter, right? So matzah is delicious if you've never eaten it. And you can dip it in chocolate if anyone likes chocolate. 
and oftentimes, you know, if you're working with a family and it's, you know, it's Passover, you're not really, you should expect to cancel for that week because they're typically going to services and that child is typically going to be, if they're in a Orthodox school, they're typically going to have to do things um, in their school for that as well. You know, another holiday you may hear or may not hear is called Shavuos. And that's like a celebration of the Torah. And that's really going back to, you know, all the way back to the Israelites. And it's really coincides with like biblical time. And this is where you would like decorate your house and typically have different types of symbolism that is going to celebrate this time of like a a feast of the week that you would have. The symbolism for this is typically to create like pure time for faith. You have Rosh Hashanah. So Rosh Hashanah is like where you're essentially doing like your atonement. Um, your day of remembrance. And this is typically, and just obviously, I'm not an Orthodox Jew, and that's very transparent. You can have different perspectives, but I still have my understanding of the holidays. And also there's a Jewish calendar, which is different than the American calendar. So the high holidays will fall differently each time of the year. Like, like just like Hanukkah is not always the same time of the year. I mean, it's usually the same time of the year, but not the same date. Like Christmas is always the same date. Hanukkah is not like that either. You know, you have Rosh Hashanah. And this is, you know, where you're trying to make amends for the sins you've committed. So you'll see a lot of, you'll be eating like honey and apple. And that's like a custom to do that. And that's really to provide that sweet of the, you'll see pomegranates as well. Those were like symbolic foods during this atonement period. And then Yom Kippur is the holiest day for the Jewish religion. Um, And this is where you're going to be fasting and and asking for forgiveness of your sins. So, you know, fasting looks very differently depending on the family. And we really recommend that if you're elderly or if you're sick, you shouldn't fast. So that is something I always remind my families when I'm working with them, especially if the child has a PFD or is just medically complex. And even medically complex, I'm going to say with just trisomy 21, I remind them that maybe even if they're an older child, maybe fasting is not the most appropriate thing for them, but that's their choice. And I always kind of go over the pluses and minuses so the families understand. So those are some of the big holidays in the Jewish religion. I don't think I did it like justice because there's so much you can talk about it. But you know, one thing about the Jewish religion is that you have opportunities to go back into your culture and learn more about why things are happening. So for instance, like the seven plagues, you know, there's a holiday that called Purim. So where you would dress up, we wouldn't celebrate Halloween, we would celebrate Purim and you dress up in different costumes. And that's to ensure, you know, you're scaring away the seven plagues and you're celebrating the plagues being gone. So that's typically after Halloween time. So it's great. You get the Halloween costumes on sale. So it's, you know, it's one of those good things too. And then there's a lot of like culture rich food in Judaism too, that really are meaningful that you may not always find in stores. You may not always find in therapy. And oftentimes I'll tell parents to bring it in if it's, if it's meaningful for them as well. No, I love this. Okay. So I have a dream and we're going to put this in the universe. Y'all know me. I always have lots of dreams, but this is a good one. And I've talked with National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders about this. But what if there was an interactive cookbook where within this cookbook, we had all of our 
like special recipes as well as like our common, like everyday, like hearty meals. But then you had it broken down according to ITSE levels, allergen risks, as well as like kosher or. Hello. Thank you. Hello. I knew there was another word. Yes. But like, what if we had that in there and and it was interactive and it was online and it was free, like free. This is the biggie. But also if you can pick it out according now, see, this is where the idea came in, Erin, because you said cat, like I said calendar. And then you were like, but the idea, what if you could also um, search it by like general seasons? Because if we know Hanukkah is going to shuffle slightly, give or take the day, but we know it's going to fall in the month of December. Does it ever leave December? I mean, normally it's in December, right? Sometimes it could be a little early, like November, but not always. But people know when it is. Like you could look for it. Yeah. Yeah. But like it could be in the interactive cookbook. Okay. Also, I just, this is the idea. Let's, let's make this happen. Miss Elizabeth. Thank you very much. I know we're talking again next week on it, but like, we're going to put that in the universe, but okay. How do you hold the conversation? How do you bring up to your families if they're Jewish and they want to fast? Like, how do you tiptoe into that with a complex patient? Well, I think it's really with those older children or young adults, because typically young children are not going to them fast. But it's really like those older children, like over 16, or the ones that are like the young adults, just like we do with anything in therapy, we're never talking at a parent, we're talking with a parent. So it's really just having a conversation about, you know, I know this holiday is coming up, tell me a little bit about what you're going to be doing with the holiday, like open ended questions, you know, what's your expectations for the holiday for yourself? What's the expectations for the holiday for little Johnny, even though he's 22 years old? That'd be our Matthew, Christian's older special right? brother. This is right. the same. Yeah. We always ask him if right. he wants a glass of like, you know, we have our pints when we're there at my father-in-law's. Yeah. He has retired to pair food and drink. This is an excellent retirement plan. And we're like, Maddie, yeah. do you want a cold pint? And he was like, I am not old enough. And I'm like, you're 45. Yeah. I am still not old enough. I'm like, okay, baby. Right. Well, Oh, yeah. But, you know, I always ask them, like, what's their expectation and how are they planning for the holiday? And then before I give them any recommendations that I may see, I said, how can I support you during the holiday? And typically I get, you know, questions on how do I support my child with this PFD during the holiday or how do I do this during the holiday or with the dysphagia? So it's usually I let the parents drive the bus of determining what they want to do, what's best for their child, even if their child's 25, 45, 35, they know their child the best. And, you know, we have to remember our kids with PFDs do grow up, so they do grow up to be adults with PFD, so we still have to treat them. So, you know, I always just lead with open-ended questions and help the parents make the best decisions for their child, because at the end of the day, it's their child. You know, but one thing I also always am very cognizant in therapy is making sure I'm not you know, mixing dairy with any meat as well, you know, especially for my parents that that's something so meaningful for them um, if they're keeping kosher. So if you're keeping kosher, you typically separate your dairy and your meat. So meaning like you wouldn't eat a cheeseburger, right? You would eat like a cheese sandwich maybe. And then you might have to wait four to eight hours if you want to eat meat. Like there's different guidelines, you know, so that way you're not contaminating you're keeping kosher by doing that. So, you know, there's many, many foods that we use in therapy, even just like plain goldfish, that if you look on the back, it may not, 
it might be dairy. It may have dairy in it. So you just have to always look at the different symbols that are talking about. And there's different symbols for kosher. Like one will be for dairy and one is without dairy. So you can eat it anytime. So that's something I always ask the parents to remind me just so I don't make an error because they're keeping respect for their faith and that they want to keep kosher for their child is so important because we know certain foods like veggie straws or cold fish are sometimes our go-to during therapy. So I just want to always make sure that I'm respecting that piece of it as well. And then always asking them to bring foods that are meaningful for them that are from home. That way we can bring foods that are culturally relevant and also that are meaningful for the parents, even if the child is not able to eat them yet, but maybe just play with it or, or explore it and those types of things. I didn't know there was more than one symbol for being kosher. So that was also, I didn't know that I just thought it's more than not eating ham. Now I know. Many, many, many households, you have two kitchens as well. One for dairy, one for meat. I think, and Michelle, you kind of touched on it at the beginning of why, and I understand why, because growing up in New York, I come from learning, like you, you don't just don't bring it up. Like you, we're just not going to talk about it. Like don't bring work, religion or faith. Like these are two separate things. Don't talk about it. But when you're treating a family and you're treating a child, this is part of who they are. This is what we're talking about today. So why, and you always tell me, seek to understand. So why is this not something that we ask about when we first meet a family and that we talk about to understand where they're coming from? Because what does anyone love to talk about? And Rocky talks about this all the time. Everyone has a story. So part of their story is going to include whatever faith, spiritual, however they look at the world and perceive the world and fight through the difficult times. So it is part of our job to know that from the beginning and to let them tell us about their story and their journey. And that's going to inform our plan of care. That's going to inform how we work with a family. And that's going to help build that relationship and that that bond that needs to happen for successful therapy and for growth. So I know this is part of the reason why like you wanted us to do this today was so that like people can feel more comfortable talking about it because how many families probably don't even feel comfortable talking to their therapist about it because they don't know if their therapist is going to understand or relate in any way. And maybe that they don't have the community surrounding them where they are that also has a similar faith. And so right from the beginning being like, I want to support you and your family. And I'm well aware that different cultures and different religions have different traditions. And I want to know about your traditions. And I want you to feel comfortable talking to me about your traditions, because that's really important to our journey together. 1000% yes. And when we go in and we do the RBI routines-based interview, when we go in and we do this and I'm picking out the first 100 words you want your baby to work on, whether that be spoken AAC or ASL, if that word is amen, if that word is bless you or whatever, if that's what you do 
at a mealtime, if that's what you do before bed, I mean, if you hold hands, I had one little one who we programmed his device. Oh my gosh. I know that mom is going to listen to this. She went to a very small, very Pentecostal church. My aunt's Pentecostal and she always cracks me up because, you know, hands are up and we, they, she said, we move more than the Baptist. That's what she teased me. And I was like, that's fantastic. But that little one would hands up. And then when they got done with the prayer, he would hit amen on his AAC device. That was one of his fringe words. Awesome. That is what that family wants. And you know what? He would say it and he would turn around, throw his little hands back up. <laughs> we were all excited because, like, I mean, that's his condition means that he is going to need an alternate means to praise his higher power. I talked with a mom yesterday with a patient who she cried in my office because her daughter, she's had so much trouble figuring out the correct AAC system for her, for her to be able to communicate. She's like, I'm just so frustrated because I feel like she can't communicate. And I said, do you see how she's leaning on you? And do you see how she just turned to you and grabbed your hand? And do you see how she like touched you there? She's telling you that she loves you and she trusts you. And yes, I'm here to help you help her say more, but I've also learned from you, Michelle, like when you say I'm praying for you, or why don't you pray about it? You're telling me I love you and I trust that you're going to be okay. That might not be my first thing to do is to go pray, but I know what you mean because I know and understand you. So just as we translate with our patients, like we have to learn to understand each other. Rock, you won't. Yes. I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, for letting me share a little bit about myself today. You know, I really appreciate it. I think being in this field, we oftentimes get lost in the definition of who we are as professionals. But, you know, going back to what gives us our strength to just be a human here is so important. So whatever it is, whoever's listening out there, doesn't matter, you know, what you celebrate, what you don't celebrate, just always know that you have someone out there for you to listen to you. And if you don't know, they're there. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Okay, I get the pleasure of introducing Dr. Faye Murray next, who adopted me at CSAP several very many moons ago (laughs) and mentored me more than she knew because Dr. Faye Murray is faculty at Northern Arizona University. Did I get it correct? Yes, yes, you got it correct. And, And Faye asked a question one time and it was, It was so profound. She was sharing that she wanted to create a safe place in her faculty, like for her students. How do I go about creating a place where they feel that they can speak openly about their faith? And I have stood on that for years because it was a thought. And we make safe places for so many things but we also need to make a safe place for people of different faith backgrounds within the world of academia too. And then I did my tiny stint in academia just long enough to realize that I don't care to do that full time, but it's enough to get my feet wet. (laughs) I didn't get it then. And when you said it, like it was in there and it was this drop of, okay, And her solution was actually quite lovely. She created a prayer box so that people could come in and put like 
put in like a prayer request in a prayer box. And I thought that was lovely. And this is so much bigger because grad school is incredibly stressful in and of its own right. And then you have to navigate this when you don't feel that you can share part of yourself or you're learning about other faiths and you want a place to ask. I asked Faye to do this with us. <laughs> and she said, yes. So hi, Faye. <laughs> Hello. It's such an honor. And I'm looking forward to getting to know these wonderful ladies more in the future. So my first memories were in church. I think I was three when I joined the choir. And I didn't really join it. I was just going with my mom. I might have even been younger. And she says they turned one day and they noticed that I had memorized all the songs that the choir was singing. So they made me a little robe. So, you know, my dad is a minister. He's just retired. He's 84. But I grew up in an evangelical church. And I went to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday evening. We had prayer on Tuesday. We had youth group on Friday. I lived and breathed church. I even went to, for my undergraduate, to a Christian university. Okay? I traveled with singing groups I like to sing and went to church camps to perform. I sang in choirs. I was a soloist. I, and all of it was Christian music. I came to the U.S. as a 10-year-old, had my Spanish education up to that point, and then everything was in English after that. The reason that my sisters and I have continued to be able to speak Spanish and read and write it is because we went to a Spanish-speaking church, and we learned how to read and write in church. We had you know, conversations in Bible study. We read our you know, hymnal. We read our, our Bible. And so how can I stop everything, go to graduate school and just drop everything, right? And that's exactly how I felt when I went to grad school. I went to graduate school, and I remember... We all have our horror stories from graduate school, don't we? And I so want to change that. I want to get rid of that. I want to stop that cycle of abuse. I was abused, so therefore, we're going to abuse the future generation. Ridiculous. But I remember a professor coming and telling me, you are not dedicated enough to this schoolwork. You're just not dedicated to this profession. What do you mean? I drove around here Sunday morning, and your car wasn't here. Where were you? And I said, I was at church. And he says, when you're in graduate school, you don't work. You don't have church. You're here. And I remember thinking, what? <laughs> what What do you mean? What do you mean? I, I, I have to be here on Sunday morning. What does it have to do? Why do I have to become secular to be a speech pathologist? How can I possibly just take part of who I am and put it over here for this certain period of time and then go back and put the suit back on again after a certain period of time? I cannot do that. I cannot celebrate. Faith is part of my who I am. Yes. As I was growing up, a lot of that was, you know, I had to do it because my parents, I didn't have a choice for 18 years. And when I went to college, even though it was a Christian college, I was able to choose not to go to church. And I really had to go through that. Is this my parents' religion or is it my religion? And I think we've all gone through that to some extent. And my religious experience right now, is not the same as it was then growing up. It's my own. It's not my parents. And I choose where to go and if I want to go on Sunday morning or not. So I felt like the school sort of expected me to just separate and that this field was not welcoming to who I was as a whole, not only as a Latina, because that's a whole different podcast, right? (laughs) 
that's a whole, I mean, I was in grad school in the eighties. So you can just imagine, well, first of all, I know I look probably much younger than that, but I've been around a while. But what I'm saying, totally doing that podcast too, woman. Right. <laughs> I took so many notes while Raquel was, was speaking. Cause I was like, this is great. I want to talk about all this. So here's another thing that happened to me. I went to grad school. I finally graduated. I, you know, started working as a speech pathologist as a Latina from Cuba, which is a completely different little culture of its own. When you talk about Central America and South America, the Caribbean. So people think Hispanics all believe the same thing, that they're, they're all Cubans should be Catholic because all Hispanics are Catholic. And, you know, there are just so many assumptions and assumptions is what get us in trouble. And as Raquel was talking, I kept thinking assumptions, assumptions, you know, we assume that, that you know, the pork is okay, that there's, there's your spiral honey baked ham was okay. You know, we make a lot of assumptions. So I met a man, I got married. He was sort of generally in my, you know, religion, sort of. He was more he Lutheran, where I was more evangelical. We had to kind of meet in the middle and we became Methodist. But <laughs> we ended up working in the Navajo Nation. The Navajo Nation is a reservation. It is in the four, four corners of Colorado, Utah, Arizona, and Nevada. It is as pretty rural. So there was that culture shock. But the religion, the beliefs were completely different than anything I had experienced before. And so when we talk about assumptions, I had many of them and none of them were correct. And I had to recalibrate and rethink about what it meant to be a Christian in the Navajo Nation and found out that there were many Christians that were Navajo. There were even some Jewish Navajos, believe it or not. There are many faiths, but they also practice. And there's a mixture of many don't believe that you have to separate them. You know, when you become a Christian, that you leave other things. So if a child, for example, died tragically, and we had that happen at one point that in, in the basket, very similar to a story that you told that they were playing basketball after school and the child had a cardiac arrest and died on the court of the school gym. And we had to close down that whole building until a medicine man came and did a ceremony. And the process of the ceremony was very interesting. There were so many ceremonies. I would go talk to a, a parent. Sometimes they wouldn't seek early intervention because they had to go through a series of ceremonies, blessings, and there are different types of ceremonies. And I was very confused about all that. And do I give money so that the parents can have a ceremony, even though that's not part of my belief system? I mean, really had really struggled with some of those things and had to come to understand that just like I cannot take my religion, my beliefs and put it here, parents can't either. And they shouldn't have to. And so here we have a public school putting some money aside for a medicine man to come and bless the building because these Navajo children aren't going to be walking in there until it's blessed. And so there you have a public institution, a secular public institution embedded with this Navajo tradition, right? In this area, there were a lot of also uh, Latter-day Saints, Mormons. So we have a whole other layer of beliefs that sometimes you know, were mixed. We also had the tradition that with the Navajos that if a child passed away, then anything that he touched had to be blessed or had to be removed. And that included standards, any cups or sippy cups or you know feeding utensils or the desk where he sat. It was so difficult for me to conceive being growing up in this very, you know, where everyone was believed like I did, you know, 
and then having to go to a place that was so different. I had nothing to really hold on to. I had no experience. I couldn't talk about some of the, my beliefs in a way that seemed to marry what they were. You know, I couldn't find a common ground many times. And that was difficult, but it was also the most beautiful experience. And I'm glad I was able to do that. I worked there for over 20 years and I'm a better person for it. I think I'm a better therapist. I think I'm a better clinician. I think I'm a better professor for having that experience that taught me what, how faith comes in many ways and how to have reciprocity. I talk about cultural reciprocity all the time, you know, that we can learn to understand each other culturally. Well, when I make my cultural map, my Faith is right on there. I'm a female. I am, you know, Hispanic. I'm Spanish speaking. I'm a mother. I am, you know, I'm a Christian. That's part of my makeup. And I shouldn't be embarrassed by that. And I shouldn't put that aside. I shouldn't be told that I can't say bless you or I'm going to pray for you. Because when I say those things, just like Michelle, I say them out of love. And sometimes I say, I'm a praying person. Is it all right if I pray for you? I've done that. The first times I said that at school, I was a little, I was, you know, they're going to turn me in. (laughs) Am I going to hear from HR? And then I thought about it. "Eh, I really don't care. I mean, I just don't. Because just as I'm able to speak about my political views, just like I'm able to speak about my love for my K-pop group, BTS, um, (laughs) I should be able to talk about my Christianity. Oh, Michelle is just cracking up. Yes, yeah. I'm sorry. My one of my sister-in-laws is like the biggest BTS got like. Fans. Oh, it's my sister's it's favorite. It's my sister's. It's favorite. a podcast. It's another podcast. Go there. Mm-hmm. Selfies and BTS. That's a completely different religion. Uh, I'm, um, I'm also so happy for pelvic floor therapy that I didn't pee when I laughed that hard. So, and we do have that podcast episode coming from my pelvic floor therapist. Okay, but, oh, I need to look that one up. The other thing is that even within Christianity, there are many different ways of expressing that. So when I came to the U.S., I didn't know who Santa Claus was. Wait, what And that's a secular part of Christmas. When I grew up, the three wise men would come on January 6th, and they would bring me presents and put them under my bed. And I sometimes would, you know, I wouldn't leave food for the camels, sometimes water, but we would waiting for the three wise men. Three wise men were in the traditional Christian tradition. In the Christian religion, they came to visit baby Jesus after he was born. And you probably see them in those, you know, those nice scenes where you have Mary and Joseph and you have the sheep and the shepherd. And then you'll also have the wise men who, by the way, probably came around when he was two years old, but that doesn't fit, you know, the nice little picture. So they have him up there with the newborn. And so celebrating Christmas in many Latin American countries is all about Christianity. You don't necessarily have these secular things. I remember visiting Mexico and Santa Claus was everywhere, you know, and I remember visiting even earlier where there was no Santa Claus. And so slowly the Western traditions are filtering into many Latin American countries, but I didn't know who he was. So my sisters, when they were little, they didn't believe in Santa Claus because it was the wise men. And who is this guy? And so we followed those traditions as we were growing up, but people around us would say, well, what's Santa going to bring you? Or what do you want Santa to bring you? And I thought he was kind of a scary kind of guy. The same way with like Dia de los Muertos, for example, not all Latin American countries celebrate that. I had a student not long ago who created this beautiful activity for Dia de los Muertos for her student. And I happened to just ask her and I said, 
have you checked with the family to see if this is something that they celebrate? She goes, well, they're from Mexico. I'm like, assumptions, right? So we talked to the family and they're like, no, that is an occult holiday. We do not celebrate Dia de los Muertos. That was the belief of this Christian family. Maybe right across the way from where they lived, another Christian family was building an altar for their past loved ones and saw absolutely no conflict with their Christianity and celebrating Dia de los Muertos. So even amongst Hispanics, you know, we tend to kind of put this amongst Native Americans, there are very specific ways of believing. And we need to just be open to being in a in a place of listening, of understanding, of humility. And what we're trying to do that way is to build trust, to demonstrate respect, and to be open because our families are only going to be as open with us as we allow them to be. So as we're creating this safe space to talk about what we're talking about, we also need to create those safe spaces with families so that they're feeling comfortable talking about it. We also have to be careful about how we speak about things. I was Hey, I know that Native American Navajos have celebrations uh, when their child first laughs, let's say. That's a bigger deal than the first words or or walking, that first laughter. I also know that they have these ceremonies when a child is ill or when something is not quite right. So I'm going to put it on the developmental history form. That was my great idea. You know, now I'm this much culturally competent. And so therefore, I'm going to show people how much I respect them. So in the developmental history, I had a place for when did your child first laugh? And I also put, have you participated in a ceremony? If so, which ones? Well, I should have checked. I think it was okay to ask about the laughter, but ceremonies are not something they discuss with outsiders. You're not supposed to talk about what type. And so that's a faux pas because I was this little bit culturally competent and assumed that I knew and I was just dangerous. you know. And so we need to make sure that we are in the place where we're listening and we listen completely and that we don't just go ahead and, and go all gangbusters without having, you know, someone who's a broker, someone who's an advocate, an ally for that community that can guide you and look at what you've printed or look at how you're changing your protocols to make sure that it is appropriate. Even within this the cultures, there's a spectrum. So some people are very traditional, some people are very evangelical, or some people are, you know, very more Orthodox Jewish. And there's like little men in the spectrum, you know, they might not be so much so until they get to the point that they really, you know, are not celebrating. They just have family traditions. So we need to find out where they are in the spectrum and be okay with that. And just have conversations where you're sharing, where you're sharing. So do my families know that I'm Christian? I don't know. I think when I was in the schools, they probably did just because it was a small reservation and they would see me or the area where I lived in, they'd see me going to church and might have some symbols or things in my office, maybe a a little verse, a Bible verse that would give me encouragement or something like that. And so then that they probably did. Did I go and invite them to church? I did not do that. Did I proselytize and, and tell them about my faith? I did not do that in my school setting, but I certainly did not hide it. Okay. And, and I want to say that part of my personality, very much like what Raquel was saying, that I feel that what faith has done for me is that it's, you know, I want to be like Jesus, right? And Jesus is, is who I look up to. And he was a kind human being. He loved everyone. He showed compassion to people. He, he healed people. He, you know, there's a lot of things that he did. 
that some, sometimes it gets a little corrupted, right? But the, as the story is told, but I want to be that person. I strive to be kind and humble. And I strive to be a person that is an encourager. I strive to be a person that tries to, to heal and to help because I want to be like Jesus. And so those things drive my practice. I am in a, in a helping field because my faith encourages me to be a person who helps and who makes the world better. And so that's why I'm in this field. How can I possibly not talk about my faith when I radiate my faith on a daily basis? And it's not fake. It's genuine because that's how I choose to be. And that's what I strive to be. Yes. Yes. Ah, yes. And there's room for all of it. There's room for earlier today, I had the gift of spending an hour with Dr. Kia Johnson. Love her. Everybody's like, I love her. She's serving her second term as the chair of Mbosla. And she's currently at UT University of Texas. I think this is correct. Kia, if I'm if I butcher this, please me. But she's in their Atlanta extension office doing research on pediatric fluency. And concurrent to that, she also was the chair of National Nishla. And so she served in, and she's also on the board of ethics. And so when I told her that we were recording tonight on this topic, and she goes, this is great because I have a student who was talking to me about, um, she wanted to do voice therapy, but she didn't want to work on transgender voice because of her faith. And I was like, okay, but how did you navigate that conversation? Because to me, I am called, just like you said, my job is to help heal. It's regardless of any of the bigger conversations. And if that individual feels that their voice needs to be healed, then in my humble opinion, we heal the voice, right? She said that's exactly, like paraphrased. She gave not the sappy Michelle Dawson version, but like that, and and that was because she goes, do you have anybody on tonight about that specific situation? I was like, no, we're going to do that for part two. I, I, have, I have been in situations such as that and others where students, you know, it's even even about vaccination. I'm anti-vax and I'm an SLP, you know, that kind of thing. Yes. And so, you know, we often have to have those conversations, but, but we have to be really careful that yes. we look at the bigger picture, you know, that we stand back. So now after being a practitioner for 24 years, you know, I became a faculty member in a, in a CSD program. And so life is different. It is a different culture altogether. And there is, and I'm in a secular environment, meaning that it's not a, it's not religiously affiliated. So we may not have the same issues with the transgender clinic that let's say Brigham Young did. You probably all heard about that, but it's important that we have a space to talk about these things because many times when you are young, you are so used to doing what the family or your faith has taught you. And it's difficult to separate faith from religion. You know, it's difficult to say, you know, I always thought that Jesus was a Navajo because he speaks in parables. It's very much like that. So I think he would get along really well with the Navajo people. I don't know where that came from. That was just kind of like a random thought. But it's that idea of there are rules that man makes about how you should practice your faith. When it comes down to it, your faith is personal. 
And you have to look and see, why do I practice this faith? What do I believe about it? And if you believe that it's a healing, it's about healing and it's about loving and it's about caring, then people who are LGBTQ, who you may not be, I don't know, some students will say, well, I'm just not in agreement with that. Well, you may not be in agreement with that, but they were created by, you know, a higher power, if that's what you believe, right? So how can you not love everyone? You know, your religion tells you you must love everyone. And so having a space where you put yourself out there and are okay with having conversations like this and not to change the, the student's religion or views, but to help them to sort of see, see the broader picture and to help them kind of reflect on their own personal beliefs. When they're younger, they're making those decisions about they're doing things because their parents want them to do. And now as you grow older and you're, you need to start making decisions about what you believe. And so those are the kinds of conversations I've had with some students. All right, this is how you grew up. Who do you want to be? What is it that you believe? You, not your mom, not your dad, not your priest, not your, what do you believe? What truth do you have in yourself? And so I haven't had any parents complain, <laughs> you know, because it's just a conversation. I'm not trying to change anyone's mind. But when you put it that way, I've had some, okay, I guess it's, it's all right. Yes, it is all right to love your fellow man. Yes. That's what we're supposed to do. When you put other aside, you know, yeah. whether their race or their gender or your preference or other, then you are not doing what your particular faith calls us to do. And I have not met a faith that says that I'm aware of <laughs> that says, you know, hate, <laughs> hate your fellow man. You know, for the most part, a lot of the religious beliefs are about love and collaboration and being there for each other. Those are things that we can all relate to. Doing everything I can not to cry through this entire time. <laughs> it's just beautiful. I'm just so happy to have this space because as when you called us and said, or, you know, we've been talking by phone and email and, and it's like, why isn't this being done? Why, why are we expected to be this different persona? You know, and I tell students when I'm supervising them, I don't want you to, I mean, obviously I have, you know, all of this experience and the way that I do therapy is the best, but <laughs> I want to discover who you are going to be as a clinician. I, I want to peel away and find who you're going to be and encourage you to be who you're going to be. We need variety. We need, you know, different kinds of flavor of people. And if we had this cookie cutter that it seems that grad schools for a long time have this vision of this cookie cutter SLP who dresses this way. And I remember going to ASHA years ago and thinking, everybody looks the same. You know, Every, everybody's got this uniform and they've got this way. And that's not the way the world is. Okay. And so telling students to discover Ah, oh, look at you. I had, I had a, a student many years ago that was, you know, possibly autistic. Okay. And she was just you know, the brightest student in all the classes, was getting wonderful grades. And then when she came to clinic, it was painful to see. And I said to her, Who is this person you're trying to be? She goes, Well, I'm trying to be what a therapist, like my, you know, colleagues. And I, that's not you. That's, that's not you. I want you to be you. What are you into? You know, I mean, the things that you like, this child is probably going to like. Okay? And so 
The same thing with faith, where you say, like, if we strip it, then that's something we will have to worry about. You know, if we strip that, it's just another thing that SLP world takes away. Stick away, you know, your color, your background, your, your speech, your faith. And then we become this very uh, vanilla, vanilla, you know, uninteresting, a person no one can relate to, you know. So as we're looking for variety, as we're looking to expand the SLP world to open up to, you know, other ways of being, that has to include our faith. And when a student walks in and she's got her head covered, is that professional wear? Yes. Absolutely. She's practicing her faith. And when she has to go and pray during the day, we need to give her the space to do that. Whether you approve of her beliefs or not, you shouldn't have to approve. We just have to be and allow others to be. Thank you. Thank you for trusting me enough to do this. Thank you for giving us the space. I'm going to cry real hard on Friday night, Karen. Okay. All right. And then Sophia, we're going to switch over to the lovely Sophia, who didn't know me from Adam when I was like, I have an idea. (laughs) This is like a really faith right here. Um, Sophia is the current president of the Hispanic Caucus. And she has a very candid walk because she was like, Sophia, can I spill your beans? Because she was like, I don't think I'm the right person to do this. You're like, I feel like a fake. I'm not sure this is the right. Aaron was like, no, we need this. <laughs> so, so Sophia works in the public schools as well with the tiny humans, middle-sized humans, I should say. And she is going to share her walk. So Sophia, take us away, man. Thank you so much, Michelle. It has been a pleasure. In the short time that I have known you, it has been a pleasure. And Rocky, thank you for introducing us. (laughs) Thank you. I am blessed to have Rocky in my life who introduced me to Michelle and has been a great uh, person to work with on the board. So thank you, Rocky. (laughs) A little bit about me and my background. I am also Hispanic. I identify as a Hispanic female. I was born in El Salvador. I'm from Central America in the beautiful country of El Salvador. My family brought me here to the United States when I was five. We immigrated with every other Salvadorian who was running from the Civil War in the late 70s and the early 80s. We followed the migration pattern and ended up in Los Angeles, California. I hate the word illegal. I was undocumented most of my young life. I was not illegal. Humans are not illegal. I was undocumented again, most of my young life. We came here looking for a better life than the war-torn country that my parents left. And so my parents brought me and my brother here, you know, try to find a better life for us, to try to give us a better life. And I feel they succeeded in that. (laughs) I think my parents have succeeded in that so far. (laughs) My mother, I was raised Catholic. My mother is very Catholic. I say very Catholic because she's very religious. My mother is very religious. My dad, not so much. Um, The faith came from my mother. (laughs) My mother is very religious and took us to church. Church continues to be very important for my mother. As I told the team before that my relationship with Catholicism is very complicated. I have a complicated relationship, to put it in a nice, mild way. (laughs) I have a very complicated relationship with Catholicism. It's been a part of who I am growing up, as have many identities. The Catholic Church was a big part of my life growing up, and not so much anymore. I've taken the good and the bad of the Catholic Church and my experiences in the church, and it's made me who I am. It has absolutely affected who I became as a clinician, too. I know that we've been talking, what I'm hearing from the other guests and from our hosts, we're talking a lot about identity. 
right? And different identities that we are that make up us as a whole. Like we are, uh, I'm a woman, I'm a speech pathologist, I'm a partner, I'm this, I'm that. So we have all these identities and sometimes they're very piecemealed depending on where you are. As I mentioned, I grew up undocumented and outside of your community, you didn't tell anybody that. You didn't tell people because I was afraid of being deported. You know, my family was afraid of getting, so we had codes for the phone with knocks. We had certain rings on the phone. There was all kinds of things that you did to hide this identity, to hide the fact that you were undocumented, right? So I'm extremely familiar with hiding parts of you in certain areas. I feel that's affected me as an adult in a lot of ways. Again, that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) I feel like that's a lot. That's a whole other podcast to talk about that. (laughs) But I feel like I can relate better to people who have to hide certain identities, right? And faith is one of them. Isn't there a joke about what you don't talk about at parties? Religion, sex. Like, isn't there a joke about that? You don't talk at parties about religion or sex or... You know, because there's we a don't lot. Talk of, about that at family breakfasts if you go. Right, to my like there's things you're not supposed <laughs> to talk about, right? Like there's always places that you go. There's things you're not supposed to talk about, right? Things are taboo for a reason. The day you know, the things are taboo depending on where you are. And I feel like faith and our religions and how they've affected our practices and how they've affected our lives is one of those identities. Like we've been talking about, I don't think you can take one part of our identity or what we identify and remove it from who we are as a whole, right? Because we're so many things as a whole, but I think that faith doesn't get talked about enough in our profession. You know, I think some cultural considerations, that includes faith and what people believe. My complicated relationship with Catholicism doesn't affect my reverence for it. I have great reverence for the Catholic church and for people that practice it. My mother is still very dedicated. I go to church with her because I know it's important to her. It may not be important to me anymore, but it's really important to my mother. So I still drive her to church. I still go on, you know, our holidays on Christmas and on Easter. I still go with my mother to church. And I've had many patients and many clients throughout the years that I've prayed with because that's something they've asked me to do. I have not initiated that, but nor have I turned away from it. They've asked me to pray for so-and-so or pray for what's happening right now. And I'm happy to. I'm happy to pray with them and do that because, again, I have a great reverence for the church, it's, even though it's not a part of my life anymore. Hold on, yeah. the drink. Hold on. <laughs> yeah. While you're drinking, I'll tell you, I had never met a Catholic person until my elementary middle school best friend, Maria Hinkle. That was her nickname was Hinkle. Mm-hmm. And her family was Italian. Her, her mom spoke Italian. And one time I was there and her mom and dad got into a fight and in Italian, she started throwing all the dishes at them. And Maria and her brother acted like everything was fine. And there's dishes literally flying around the kitchen. She goes, it's not bad. And I was like, what do you mean? It's not bad. She goes, she didn't go for the good China. And I was like, what is happening? And then Maria's older brother, Alden, Alden proceeded to tell me how they were actually part vampires because they drank blood at church. And I went home and I was like, Mom, I really like Maria at school, but I can't go to Maria's house anymore. And my mom was like, well, I was like, they drink blood and they throw dishes. She did not believe me because Southern Baptists. And so that was my first experience with Catholicism was an Italian house where you throw dishes and you drink blood. So can I tell you, I was really turned off to Catholicism as an entire entity until I went away to college and I started taking history classes and I paired art history with history. And then I learned more about Catholicism because it was so fundamental to world history. But I got to be honest. It really did scar me for a very long time. (laughs) 
So that is a great story. <laughs> that's a great story. I'm like, that's, yeah, that's, you know, and that's not far from, I think that makes the the point about other people practicing in their own way, right? <laughs> like, I don't know many people that throw dishes and, you know, <laughs> maybe for other reasons, not faith related. But as you mentioned, the Catholic church and Catholicism itself is very old. Like it's a very old religion. And so you're going to meet people that practice it. You're going to meet those people in your school, in your practice. You will run into Catholics because it's old and very worldwide. So you will meet these people. So I feel like having some sort of, you know, some knowledge base about what uh, Catholics believe or how they practice. Again, prayer is really important. That prayer is powerful in the Catholic Church, giving your faith to God and letting him take care of what's happening. Those things like that, I feel are really important to know. I did another... uh, it wasn't a podcast, but another, I can't remember what I did, but I was talking about these things that we're talking about now, uh, but in a more general term about things, not just in our profession, but in the world in general. I think in our country, especially things that were once in the dark have come out to the light. And we're having conversations about a variety of things that were once in, literally in the closet. We're talking about race issues. We're talking about religion, race sex, politics, all the things you're not supposed to talk about. I feel like there's been an outing of these things pushed out into the light that were before in the dark. Within our profession, I think there's a reckoning happening. I feel like there's a reckoning in our profession about these things that we're not supposed to talk about. Within our profession, again, the races, the politics, the religion, the sex. I think that there's a, it's a time. I think that the world is a different place. And now there's a reckoning in our profession too. I see it when I go to conventions. I see people talking about their experiences about those things within our profession. And I don't feel like they've been talked about as much before. Again, we kind of were set to fit a little little bit of a norm. I agree with what Faye said about seeing when I started this profession 20 some years ago, there wasn't a lot of people that look like me. I mean, there's some identities I can hide and some I can't. You can look at me and know that I'm not white. Like you can look at me and know certain things about me. There's certain things I can't hide. I can hide a lot about me, but certain things are just, you can't hide them, you know? And there wasn't a lot of people that looked like me when we began 20 years ago. So So things like that are different now. I feel like there is a reckoning in our profession about, if you remember, if you were old enough to remember the silence equals death during the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, and now a slogan that the LGBTQ community continues to use is silence equals death. And so if we're quiet, if we stay quiet about things, it really affects our ability to do things like our job. It affects our own identity and it affects the people around us. So I feel that's changing in our profession and I'm glad to see it. I have questions about Catholicism Uh because I didn't grow up with it. Uh And I've always like the act of praying on the rosary. It's just so beautiful to me, but I have no idea what it means, what's being said and the why behind it. You know, I've gone into patients' homes and yeah. you know the, the grandmother of the family has yeah. them. And I am also hyper aware that I am a white woman working in the South. And mm-hmm. some of the areas that I am called to serve in everyone's afraid that because I am a white female that I will call ice and people they'll get deported. I currently have my little one who has hospice. His parents were brought here from different countries. They were also escaping, but they were dreamers. They were, you know, they were brought here when they were children and 
than they were a child when they had a child and their parents were deported. And so now they are children with a child here in the States and they are at a loss for resources. And I have had to help them navigate. And so like, that's one experience with, you know, their faith and, you know, their Catholic and squirrel, emotional squirrels. Can you tell me what is the rosary for? Like, that's just a very naive question that I see Aaron smiling at me, but like, no, <laughs> no, I think in Catholicism, uh, like rituals are really important in Catholicism, like your rituals. That's why there's church on Sunday and it's always exactly the same. <laughs> like there's a ritual to having a mass, right? Like mm-hmm. rituals are super important. And the are rosary- your masses in Latin? I'm so sorry. They can be. There's still masses here in Los Angeles that you can find in the old land. They can be. And midnight mass, midnight mass to celebrate Christmas or the birth of Jesus. That's always at midnight. And most of the time, that one's in Latin. (laughs) I'm like, that one is in old Latin. So yeah. So rituals, the ritual of it is very important. And things like a communion, it actually, so things have power in Catholicism too, right? Like the actual Eucharist, it becomes the body of Christ. It actually becomes the body of Christ when you when the priest blessed it, the rosary has power. It has, it's blessed as well. Rosaries are blessed. So things contain power, like objects, idolatry. Like there's an idolatry to Catholicism that a lot of people kind of try to deny, but there's a lot of idolatry, the rosaries, the communion, things hold power in Catholicism. And so if you use them within your rituals that are really important, they have more power to it. Like maybe you'll be heard a little bit better. You know, does that make sense? Yes. Okay. But what about the saints? Where do the saints fall in? That's a very intimate question. I'm sorry, but like, oh, no. I'm, like I'm like, no, Catholics also have a lot of saints. <laughs> I'm like, there are a lot of saints. And again, those saints hold a lot of power in the church. Like they've reached a certain level of faith. They're able to perform miracles. They were able to do this, save the poor, perform these miracles. They hold a certain level of hierarchy in the Catholic church. They were able to achieve this level of faith. That's what the saints represent. They were able to achieve this higher level of faith. That's what the saints, and there's saints for all kinds of things. There's like saints for travelers, for people who are lost, saints for the pets. There's saints for a lot. People connect with certain saints. Like you'll see people that have certain saints, like that they resonate with or that like their family resonates with. Yeah. So it's like a higher level of faith that people can achieve to. Like you can be this within the Catholic church, so kind of thing. Do you Uh, pray to the saints? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Yes. Really? Wow. Yes. Yes. Again, that idolatry. Like, it, it, Catholics have a lot of idolatry. You know? You're praying to saints. You're praying to altars. You're praying to the church itself. Is very like it's very decorated. <laughs> like it's very decorated. It brings. I feel like it's a the church itself is like a giant altar, right? <laughs> like it brings a certain reverence and it, it inspires things in you. To want to do like prayer and to want to do those things. So I hate to use the word gaudy, but sometimes they're <laughs> a little gaudy, depending on where you are practicing your Catholicism. I hate to use the word gaudy, but they're kind of gaudy sometimes. There's a Greek Orthodox church down the street from us. And I've, I've never been inside a Greek Orthodox church before. <laughs> But they, our sweet friend, Annalisa Nicolatis, boys have called her Annalisa Lettuce because they couldn't say Annalisa Nicolatis. So they always <laughs> called her Annalisa Lettuce. And so like her family's Greek. And when she moved to <laughs> Colombia and like became part of, you know, our family, her family, like her grandparents are from Greece. And so she brought new 
traditions and new customs, like all red Easter eggs is something that I didn't know about, about Easter being like the Greek Orthodox Easter isn't the same as the Christian Easter and little traditions like that, that we had no idea about. So instead of going to the Greek fest to just hit the drive-through for the food, we actually went into, that's what we did. We go to the Greek fest. I bring home all the baklava and enough baklava to like last until my husband beaded me to the baklava and and Mr. Dawson, he's got a sweet tooth, but we actually went in this year and it was, it was amazing. Aaron, who it was you and me and Sarah and Casey came and we all went in and I had never seen saints like painted on the walls before because in Baptist church we don't do that if you might every once in a while have stained glass on the walls to tell like the basically Christ life cycle around but to see old stories and saints painted and stories I didn't know about that you know they were like yeah this is such I was like I mean, I like minored in art history once upon a time. So like that in and of itself, like the power of an image to tell a story and to convey a history is like profound, but and to say that they're beautiful, like the inside of those yeah. like gaudy yeah. churches are beautiful. And I think they're there to evoke a certain passion. Like mm-hmm. those images evoke things in us. The, if you've been to a Catholic church, there is a light, usually a very large Jesus on a cross inside of Catholic church. So that's there to evoke a response in you, right? To evoke a passion or your faith or to evoke something. I think the imagery inside of Catholic churches is meant to do that as well. Like they're meant to evoke a certain passion in you and a certain like inspiration for your faith. I think that's important. Yes. Now, Erin, can you talk to us about yours, your walk love with Catholicism and and your experiences? So I have a couple thoughts because my experience is unique. I mean, ours are all unique, but my parents grew up Catholic, but they were not practicing Catholicism. My Nana and my Papa were, and my grandma was, and my grandma and grandpa, but I only ever went to church with my Nana. So I probably went with my grandma at some point because my dad would still go because he knew it meant a lot to her. I think it's important. And I think we also have to acknowledge, and I really love the distinction that all of us are making today about faith and religion Mm -hmm. and how we're talking about our faith that may include our religion, but that, that it doesn't have to, because I think it's also important to acknowledge that there are people that have been hurt by religion and that we, we can't have this conversation without acknowledging that are people that have a walk that they've had experiences and But having that faith, I think, allows us to find that common denominator and to better understand each other. And so I would go to church with my Nana and she was my person. She was my faith. So I had faith in her that it wasn't until she, I mean, I always knew that, but when she passed away, I recognized that even more, how much she helped me have faith and trust because she always just got it. Like she just got life. She had Catholicism and her religion and her faith that built her up and made her very strong to be that person. And that faith in people and their light 
has introduced me to other people that have continued my faith and trust in just us helping each other. I met my best friend, Sam and Michelle, a little bit before my Nana passed away. And I don't think that was a coincidence. She led me to South Carolina because she was supposed to be in Myrtle Beach when I was in grad school and she couldn't make it there the entire time I was in grad school. But South Carolina led me to Sam and and Michelle. But the people that have, some of the people that have been so core to compasses in my life have very strong faith, whether that be religion or what their faith is, continue to find these people that restore my faith. And it's actually interesting in this conversation, like it's very healing for me to think about it that way, because sometimes when you don't have something to define it, it's hard to feel like it's hard to know what that is when there's not like a name for it. I don't really have a a name necessarily for like what my faith is, but I've been lucky to have so many amazing people in my life that have guided me and it's allowed me to be more open to understand other people's religion and faith and journey. And I, and I, it's just whatever you need to be the best version of yourself and to feel connected to people, because really that's what all of it is, is feeling connected, guiding our every day and our purpose and our own vision for who we want to be. Like that's the common denominator in all of this. And some people are going to come across or might not see it that way. And it's important to acknowledge like what experiences they may have had. But I grew up going to church and I grew up in Western New York where 50% 50% of my high school was Italian. Almost everybody was Catholic. So it's just, you're just like, that's what you're surrounded by. And I love the traditions. And I think it like the connection of that was always so wonderful because you really do feel connected to those people. And um, I think people have their own experiences and maybe their own differences. Catholicism is very old and there's a lot of traditions that like have been carried on for a long time, even as the world has shifted a lot. That's something that a lot of people acknowledge, but sorry, I just blubbered a lot. When I think of faith, I think of her. And so I've gone to church with my friend Sam before I get very emotional because it just like reminds me of her because that's the the memory that I have. But that's it. That's what drives us. Our faith is our core, who we are. And if your faith is in a person and that's part of your identity, that's part of your culture. So not growing up Catholic, not growing up Lutheran, there is one day of the year that means the most to me spiritually, and that's Ash Wednesday. At Ash Wednesday, wherever I am, I will drive somewhere to try to find some ashes. Lutheran, again, is like kissing cousins with Catholicism, right? They're like pretty close. And one thing that Martin Luther kept within that faith, the structure of religion, was you know, we, we recognize Ash Wednesday, we recognize the period of Lent, the giving something up or 
adding something in. But on Ash Wednesday, as a human, I allow myself time to grieve everything that I feel like I have failed in, which I have anxiety. I have that constant negative self-talk. I have PTSD and I can go there and I can sit in that dark place in my head for an extended period of time if I allow myself. And I know that about myself. But on Ash Wednesday, I am reminded through the act of ashes that I can just give it away, that I can let it go, everything, all the things. I can just, I am free of it, whatever the it is that year. And it's very raw and uplifting. And I always forget that I have ashes on my forehead and I touch my face constantly. So by the end of the day, I just look like it's one great, uh, yeah, Sophia's over there. Like y'all can't see her on camera. Sophia's over there, like smudging her forehead. But like, by the end of the day, it kind of looks like somebody just like, I don't know, you know, spit a tobacco wad on my forehead, but like the psychology of faith. Yes, babe, you're right. That to me is my most profound interactive day of faith. And I have found that through that profession of faith, that wearing of my ashes, people ask me, like, what is that? Or they ask those questions. So, I mean, that's a raw favorite moment that like, not everybody knows Lutherans do ashes, but I mean, there's a reason why. I mean, all my sins are forgiven, right? But can I ask everybody like their most personal, intimate, cultural moment or one of their favorite aspects or something they wish to clarify about their specific structure of religion. I mean, that would be, that's a big one. I didn't grow up celebrating Ash Wednesday or Good Friday or things like that. The way I grew up, Easter was the big holiday. You know, we didn't talk about the suffering of Jesus as much. We talked about the resurrection of Jesus, which is what Easter is about. But as I became more of an adult in my faith, I found that Good Friday is something that's very personal. It's a time when you reflect. It's a a quiet day, right? So in the Christian religion, Jesus Christ on Thursday was arrested and taken away. And then on Friday, he was crucified and he died. And on Saturday, there's quiet, right? And then on Sunday, he resurrected from the dead. That's Easter weekend right there. And it it coincides with Passover because before he actually uh, was arrested, he had the Passover meal with his disciples. So there's this this link to Judaism. But on Good Friday, it's kind of strange that they call it good, right? But on Good Friday, it's a time for me to reflect about the sacrifice that people make for me. There's a sacrifice that Jesus made for me when he died for my sins. That's That's what the belief is. But I also think about throughout my life, the sacrifices that people have made for me so that I can be where I am. And I go back and reflect on my parents who left a communist country and, you know, went to a new country, very similar to, to Sophia's experiences, only we were political refugees and they gave us, because we're Cubans, you know, we get preferential front of the line. Here's your, your green card right as soon as we step on, it used to be that way. So 
I think about my grandparents. I think about my parents. I think about the people around me, my mentors. And so Good Friday is a place where I reflect how I'm not worthy, but yet I accept these gifts from others through grace. I, I don't deserve the goodness that's bestowed upon me. So it humbles me and it's a time for reflection. So I find Good Friday to be a, a very special uh, time for me uh, personally. So mine is a little different. I don't have like a specific holiday or period that I really resonates with me. Something that resonates with me might sound a little weird. So bear with me. So I said earlier during our talk today that my father died when I was 10. And in the Jewish religion, you have to be buried within a specific amount of time, right? It's not like two weeks. It's it's like 24 hours. And my dad died on a Saturday in the middle of Shabbos. So Shabbos is usually Friday sundown, sundown to sundown, right? Essentially. And my dad died on a Saturday night when Shabbos was ending. So his family wanted to make sure he was buried within that 24-hour period even though it was during Shabbos. And I was 10, I was a child, but I was very mature. And I remember we were at the gravesite and I couldn't understand why flowers were not at the other graves, like when they were preparing, you know, the gravesite. And it really bothered me, even though I was mourning my father that just passed away 24 hours earlier, literally. And I started picking up like weeds and putting it on these gravesites. I didn't even know these people. And there was rocks on the gravesites. Okay. Everywhere. There's rocks everywhere on the grave sites. And I didn't understand what was going on. So I started taking off the rocks and putting flowers. One of my cousins or like third cousins or something stopped me and said, you can't do that. The rocks are purposeful. Like they need to be there. And I was like, why? Like they need flowers. Cause that's what you're, you see on TV. And that's what you see like in other traditions. And I was like, why? I don't understand. And they started putting all the rocks back. And they said, that's what's going to help this person's soul stay until they're ready to move on. We need to keep them here. And the rocks is part of that tradition. And ever since then, that's something I always think about, you know, is like how, you know, rocks or, or anything that's with the earth is something that really grounds us. And that, you know, even though there are some challenges I have with my own faith and my own religion, you know, that's something I always think about is how the simple act of a rock on a, a headstone is something that is so ingrained in our faith to keep that soul in so they don't get lost before they move on to their next, you know, with the Messiah, you know, and that move along. So even to this day, like I look at objects, like even at a park, and I'm always like, I wonder what this is, is helping move to the next plane because it has such a good meaning. So that's something that resonated with. Okay. So I have a confession. My family has a family tradition where once a year we go to the old family gravesite and like where like my grandma and everybody's buried, but it's, it is in the middle of the sticks. And there's only one restaurant in town and it's called Coochie's. And when you go, Coochie's is Italian and they make subs. So you can order a hot Coochie, a wet Coochie, sloppy Coochie, or you can while out and get a hot, wet, sloppy Coochie sub. <laughs> this is not appropriate for a faith conversation, but this is part of who I am. And so they're really good subs. And Mr. Coochie was very much in good business. But one year we all got to the way over in the Blue Ridge Mountains. We all got to the family gravesite and there was no charcoal because we cook out like our family, because we're Cherokee and we're Padawamic, it mingles with the structure of our religion. 
So we break bread with the dead, right? We tend them, we love them, we plant flowers on them. The last time we went, the kids were little and I turned around and they were all peeing on the tallest tombstone because they're boys. And I felt like the world's worst mother and the world's worst great, 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 great granddaughter. But like there they saw something tall, you got to pee on it. And I'm like, oh my God, we're all going to hell. But like, this is what happens when you have boys and every other boy mom in the room knows that that's like, but like, I, it just, it happens so quick. And like, of the things that I feel guilt about, like, this is one of the things, but like, when there's other families that married in and that are loved in and they're extended, but when there's babies that have passed these stories, Michelle, I know Faye, my family's a hot, glorious mess. We're the hot, wet, sloppy Gucci. <laughs> but like they would put the little toys on top of the tombstones so that the babies would have them. I love that when we go and we see that because I'm like, there's still love there. Also my grandma that raised me, she had a smiley face put on her tombstone. This is her symbol. So like that, I think that's just beautiful. Aaron, Sophia, do either one of y'all just have like one, one day or one memory within your, within the structure that just. I just wanted to make a commentary that oftentimes when we talk about like religion um, and maybe not so much faith or in your religion, maybe I think that it's presented in the context of like good and bad. Like, I think it's presented in the context of like good versus evil, right? A lot of the things within the Catholic Church are like good and evil. And I think that sometimes that leaves people in the middle feeling like less than or or like you are evil, you know, or you're not good enough. Like, I think it leaves people who are, are struggling with their faith and their religion somewhere in the middle. And I think that that also, uh, I think that also guides who we are as clinicians and as mothers and as all the other identities that we do. I think that guides what we do as well. That thought, that feeling of being less than or not enough, you know, I think that's important to note. <laughs> I think it's important to note that some people are in the middle. And if you find yourself in the middle, that it's okay. <laughs> that I feel like the actions that you take, even if you feel like within a religion, you're in the middle somewhere. I feel like the actions that you take as a human being, like is it compassion, helping working in a helping profession? I feel like those acts of service that we do in our everyday lives and in our profession are just as powerful as the faith that you're trying to struggle with. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. And there's a, I mean, I have, I mean, I think they would consider themselves like agnostic. I would probably call myself agnostic. Like I believe in something. I just, I can't always define it. And I think it, it is very hard especially when the world feels like it's crumbling, when you don't have something you can define to like, to fall back on. That's a very, very hard place to be. And having the conversations too of like these conversations to help people feel less, not le I guess less in the middle kind of, but less excluded. Cause I think it's, it can be hard like you said, when you don't feel like you fully fit in somewhere, but then acknowledging that there are so many people that are doing better and making people feel included because we're all trying to do better. And I know, and I've struggled a lot of times when I've just felt so defeated and, and I've turned to my Nano or I've, and I've turned to the people in my life. But sometimes when you like 
you don't know what's happening with the world and you're like, but I don't have this thing that like is tangible and I can just look to, to guide me. I have people to guide me. So I know there's a lot of people out there that feel that way and that are just trying to find ways to just be the best person that they can be. But I also think that like, what I love about this today is like, we are all so similar, like these stories and these, we hear from our grandparents, like to the core, like they are so similar. And so, and I know we are all people in a field that we want to help people. So that we are people that try to understand people. Like you're not going to be in this field and not be someone that's trying to understand the person in front of you. So already we have this thing that connects all of us. But I think if everybody started to do that more, to realize that the reason we all have a faith is because we all have a similar goal. But I agree. I think it's just, that's something that is important to acknowledge. And I, it's been interesting living in different parts of the country and seeing how that varies and how the conversation varies. And, and it's allowed me to understand different sides of what that conversation looks like in regards to faith and religion, because it's so different where you go sometimes. So you said something today about counseling. I like how I'm pointing to Erin as if like she can see me on like the um, Price is Right lineup. No, what is that game when everybody picks a square? Like, yes. But you talked about the counseling piece, Mm -hmm. but that is paramount to what we do as a profession is to counsel and guide our caregivers, our especially in early intervention, but by validating where we are in ourselves with respect to our journey, it allows us to have a more open conversation when we're trying to go about counseling, because whichever way we go, we're going to bring our spoken and unspoken biases with us when we go in down to, would you like me to wash my hands in the sink? Cause I see that you have food like defrosting or you have dishes here, or where do you want me to take my shoes off? Or how do I trying to be respectful going into a patient's house of a, they could be a different faith. Remember, or we recorded a podcast a while, a couple weeks ago and this will, I hope this makes sense when I say it with the neurodiversity affirming movement and talking about how we, we need to focus on individual differences instead of putting these labels because no person is one label. So yes, it might be more of a mouthful to say an autistic child with hyposensitive sensory needs and partially speaking with a speech generating device. There's way more to it, but when you said that, it made me think too of, yes, we identify with certain labels, but those labels, every person deserves for you to understand that even more and to dive deeper into how they interpret their faith and how they interpret their religion and how they interpret their role in their family and how they interpret their profession and what they do. Because yes, we're all speech pathologists, but we all 
have a different therapeutic sense of self and we all treat different patients. So like taking the time to ask those individual questions so that we really do understand that person because we we're going to have those biases, but like, doesn't every person deserve for us to ask those deeper questions and really get to know them as opposed to just going in with our own notion, just as we do with the patients that we work with which takes time, but then there has to be this unspoken trust and agreement of we're going to take time to get to know each other and that's okay. And I'm going to trust that we're going to keep getting to know each other and you're going to be open to that. And I'm going to be open to that, which is hard to do, but. I am so freaking glad that you came to South Carolina. Um, I just wanted to piggyback on what she just said quickly about our, especially with our neurodiverse community when we talk about like our beautiful children and adults with autistic labels and that movement, again, similar to what I was talking about, the movement, the reckoning that now those kids that went through ABA, those kids that had speech therapy, their whole lives are now adults. And now they have a greater voice. They have a bigger voice to say, this is what was done to me. Like, look what your church has done to me. That's a line from Dracula. Sorry. I'm like, I'm a huge vampire. I'm like, look what your church has done to me. I'm like, so I feel like uh, in that respect, I feel like those uh, kids now adults are championing this movement about, hey, listen to me, look what was done to me. Like, and now I, I need a voice to say that this happened. I think especially when it comes to pragmatic language, social skills training, if we don't talk about things like religion and sexuality, these kids already don't know how to talk about a lot of things. Like we train them to say hello and order McDonald's. I know, but we don't include the faith conversation. And so then they're out in the world and they already have trouble communicating about certain things, a lot of things. It's difficult for our kids uh, who are neurodiverse. And I feel like we do them a disservice by not adding religion and sexuality to the conversations when we treat them. I feel like if I just teach them how to order something outside or how to say hello to people, it's doing them a disservice. And I think that relates directly to what we do. Like in the therapy room. It's important. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yes. Can I add something? Just kind of came to me as you were talking about the fact that we need to all confront, be aware of our lens, our faith lens. Because many times we walk in there with our assumptions and our preconceived notions and our baggage and we hurt and we harm and we make people feel uncomfortable. And we do a lot of judgmental uh, type of counseling often because sometimes we're not aware that we're bringing everything that, you know, the mainstream Christian perspective, let's just say, in speech pathology or whatever, it could be white, female, you know, middle class, upper middle class type of thing. So we need to just be aware that our words can heal, but our words can also hurt. And and being aware of what faith is to us and is not to us is important for us to, to, to know how that, whether we agree with it or not, it comes out through our pores. Whether we are people that believe or, or thinking or whatever it is, it still is out there. You, you, you think you're hiding it, but you're not. And so we need to be conscious and we need to embrace where we're at so that we are aware of how we come across to our families and to those around us because we can harm, but isn't it better to heal? I think that's the cultural humility that you were discussing earlier. It's not confidence. Confidence is not a place you land. 
and stay there, right? It's cultural humility because the first step to that is realizing that what you believe is not what everybody else believes. And so that starts your journey that takes you on a journey to cultural competence, but it's not, you know, a checklist that I'm confident in cultures. Like that's not, it's really, we need a lot of cultural humility in my opinion. I'm just laughing because like as speech pathologists, do we not love a freaking checklist? We're like, Oh, done, done. That's done. Like we're, I mean, like so you can tell me you're a type B SLP, but like, I've never met one. We're all, we're all a little bit much like this is, I don't know, kettle black kind of thing. If I ever heard such a thing, but like, um, it's just our name, our name's a speech language pathologist. So we pathologize, like we, you know, we pathologize things that yeah. maybe don't need to be pathologized. Thank you. <laughs> like yeah, you know, that's, it's in our name though. Like we come from a deficit model. Right. I work in special ed for more than 20 years. I've worked in special education. It's a deficit model. Here are the goals for everything you cannot do. Like, let me give you a goal for this that you cannot do. Like, again, we come from a deficit model where we pathologize things. So I think turning our profession inside out is what's happening with these conversations. We need to flip the script. Right. That we're not just pathologizing you and giving you goals for everything you cannot do. Like, how about what can you do? (laughs) <laughs> like I feel like it's glossed over right like what what are your strengths really what can you do so maybe yeah. we need to change our name and a lot of us like to fix things right we're fixers and maybe we shouldn't be fixers maybe we you know there's a different thing that we do which is to be accepting and to be a guide for others you know and to whatever they want to be yeah I, was I don't know let's think about the how we I can change our name I think that's really important what you just said is how can we, you know, that's something we don't learn, right? We don't learn in grad school. We don't learn even in like your CF mentorship is how do you help your clients be who they want to be? Like how many of us ask a parent or ask even the child, like, do you want to eat like this? Do you want to talk like this? Because if you do, that's your choice, right? No one's telling me I can't drink my Starbucks every day, right? It's my choice if I'm going to go broke. Same thing with a child. If and a parent, it's their choice. And I think that's something we don't do. We tell them this is what they have to do and that their child is not meeting the milestone. And this is what the problem is. So, I mean, that's a whole nother talk for a whole nother day. And we, sure have we, an could, hour we could get it together. <laughs> I mean, we could yeah, talk definitely. For hours about. But, you know, like really, exactly. And like really saying, you know, really just, you know, everything we've talked tonight, just even just about like faith and how we like look at things within ourselves we don't know how to have those uncomfortable conversations with people that are, that don't look like us or don't act like us, you know? So, and oftentimes we might be too uncomfortable or we'll label that client or that family as like non-compliant or defiant, or, and maybe we're just not meeting them where they are. Maybe we're just not listening to what they're saying you know and that's something that you know I'm guilty of too I mean I've done it we've all I I think all of us can say we've done it because we all have our own unintentional biases that we bring to the table even with someone of our own faith you know so this has been such an honor guys to talk with you tonight really thank you for having the space for us Michelle and letting us talk about the stuff that really needs to be talked about (laughs) this and, and lots of other things really need to be talked about Yes. Thank you for the space. I was just, I just typed in there. I think my head's going to fall off. I kept just nodding. Yes, yes, yes. I agree. I'm with my people. So I love it. Thank you so much. My heart is so full. My heart is so full. Thank you. 
I feel like we get to be guides on a journey that we're walking with people in their valleys. We're celebrating when we hit their mountaintops or when they get a plateau. Like that's what I get to do. I get to walk alongside you. I will cry with you when you need it. Happy tears, sad tears. I mean, good Lord, if there's a good commercial, I'm going to cry, but like, that's just who I am. I know. Right. It it does. It just gets worse. The older I get now, I know why my grandma kept tissues in her sleeve. And when we flew to Asha, I kept a tissue in my sleeve. And when we landed, Juliana was looking at me. She's like, how old are you? I was like, I don't know. I also collect thimbles. So like, go figure. (laughs) I do. I have eight thimble cases in my house and they've got, yes, I'm secretly an 80 year old woman, just minus the cats, but Thank y'all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing and being vulnerable and being honest because I know that we talked about joys and wounds that were on their own unique healing journeys. And I am grateful for that level of trust and everybody that's listening. This is, this is who we are today and for better or for worse. You got us. So that's it. That's all I got. Cause I'm going to like, seriously have a good, ugly cry when we get off. But Aaron, I love the idea of doing the counseling episode. Okay. I think it's definitely important. Thank you. I mean, I, I just want to say one more time, if anyone is listening today, that I hope when you're listening to this episode, you're not taking anything and thinking that this is SLPs trying to help you find your calling as a faith-based SLP. I hope you're taking this as how can I use my own beliefs and traditions and support others that are around me to find what brings them joy and happiness? Because I think so many of our families, all they hear is that their child is disordered and all they hear is tell me why you're here today. Tell me about your child's history. Is there anything I should know? And they have to just like rehash these stories that about their child that and oftentimes in their own culture or religion, it's not something that's really accepted or it's looked down upon or they feel guilt for. So I think if this can help just change your practice a little bit, I know it's changed me in the last two hours. So thank you guys. Yes, everyone. You. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all, uh, Kathy King Kate for this oasis of sharing. Yes. I got called an oasis. I've been called badass, but never been called an oasis. So that's that's a that's a new one. <laughs> Everybody, thank you for joining us tonight. Ladies, all my love and gratitude. Bye. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the all things peds SLP. 
This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures... All right, so I receive compensation for first bite presentations as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye. Bye.